All right, we are going to uh, open up our Bibles, or you can look at the overhead at a passage that we're considering now for this afternoon's service. It comes from the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So you have four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So it's the third Gospel, Luke chapter 24, and what we're going to do is we're going to begin reading at uh, verse uh, 13 and read through um, verse 33. And then also what we're going to do is after the reading of this passage from the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to uh, have a responsive reading from a document that we are considering in this church from week to week, and that is called the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a document, if you're new here, that goes back a number of years. In fact, it goes all the way back to 1563. And You might say, well, why are you considering a document that that's old. I mean, it's really quite old. But it's a document that really has stood the test of time. And there are many churches, actually, that consider this document as a faithful expression and summary of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So uh, I hope to demonstrate that um, this afternoon. Now, before we uh, read from this document, the Heidelberg Catechism, I want to read from Luke chapter 24, the beginning of Luke 24 begins with the account of what we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not dead, but he's very much alive and already now is ruling over all things. So when you look at Luke 24, you read about the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical account, and then we read about the appearance of Jesus to a number of individuals. In fact, the Bible tells us at one point that Jesus appeared in his resurrected physical state to over 500 people at one time. Now, that's not recorded here in Luke 24. Here, Jesus appears to two men, which I'll explain a little bit later on, and then we also read about the ascension of Christ. But right now, Jesus' appearance to two men who are traveling from Jerusalem to a small town named Emmaus. It's only about seven miles from Jerusalem. So, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you talk. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, this is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, why don't we end at that point, actually. I want to draw your attention. If AV guys, can you put up uh, question and answer 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, I want you to notice the question. I'm going to read the question And then together, I want us to give the answer. Um, I'm going to read the question and and then make a a, a simple point here. The question is this, from where do you know this? Now, the last time that we were together, because I preach in other churches, and as you know, a couple of Sundays ago also, um, I was uh, with, uh, Joy and I were with our kids, because our granddaughter was um, baptized in uh, in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, anyway, um, and so it's been a while since we've been here and if, if in the catechism. And if you're new here and you're looking at that question, go, I don't know what that's referring to, we wouldn't expect you to. So let me explain real quick. The question is, from where do you know this? And, of course, we're asking, know what? And the what is this. Um, over the last few weeks, as we've been focusing on Jesus and particularly what makes Jesus particularly qualified to take care of our sin and break the power and the guilt and the penalty of sin and restore us to God, how do we come, we've looked at that and the question is, how do we come to know that that is actually true? And how do we come to know actually that Jesus is the one who is, as he says, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one of us here this afternoon comes to God but through him? How do, how do we know that? Now, the answer is found in answer 19. So let's say together. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. What you find in this document, the Heidelberg Catechism, it's it's very concise, but also very understandable. We're going to look at the gospel. We're going to look at the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, again, um, for those of you who may be visiting from other churches or um, just visiting here, whatever, from the first time, you're not a part of another church, I want to explain to you very quickly that as we, we go through this series in our afternoon services, what I try to do as a pastor, I try to make it very simple. Not simplistic, not superficial, but simple. You say, why is that? Because we're always aware here that there may be people who do not know what the Bible is all about in the gospel, but we do this especially for the sake of our kids, okay? So kids, I want you to listen up, because I'm going to begin with you. Let's look at this book. Now, if you're part of this church, you know what this book obviously is. It's called the Bible, or we call it God's Word. And um, I want to ask you a very simple question. How are we supposed to understand this book? How are, we supposed to, how are we supposed to approach this book and how are we actually supposed to understand it? Is this book, kind of, first and foremost, just a book about history? Because when you read this book, you read about various historical periods, times when people lived, and we read about their cultural practices, and we read about their beliefs, read about their laws, we read about historical battles that are fought, and these kinds of things. Is this, first and foremost, a book about history? Or is this a book, like a lot of people assume in the world today, that this is a book that just kind of shows us how we're supposed to live? 
That in this book, we learn about who God is, but also we learn about how he wants us to live. What are the right things to do, and what are the wrong things to do? And many people who are not familiar with the Bible, they hear about Jesus, and when you ask them about Jesus, they say, oh, he was a good man, and he was a good teacher, and he taught people good things. What, to, what, what they were supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. So is this book, first and foremost, a book of kind of morals or laws or commands? Or, finally, is this book a book that just contains various doctrines or, or teachings? Like, you'll find these words in the Bible, like uh, predest- a lot of shun words, they're noun words, predestination, or regeneration, or justification, or sanctification, or adoption, or redemption, or propitiation, or expiation, and all those things that probably a number of you kids are like, what is he talking about? Well, that's why you're, that you go to catechism classes. And for some of you, that's why you go to Christian school, so you learn about these things. And kids, even as adults, you know, we, we forget about these things sometimes, and that's why we get together on an afternoon and we learn about these things, or we relearn them. All right? So, is this a book primarily about history or morals and doctrines? Well, let me tell you, you do find morals in this book, and you do find history in this book, and you do find doctrines or teachings in this book. But when it comes to this book, we have to understand that this is first and foremost a story. You ever thought about the Bible in a way? It's a story. It's what, what some theologians call a grand narrative. That's a grand overarching story. A story that teaches us about the true story of the world. So if you ever want to explain something to people who don't know anything about the Bible, you say, here is where we find actually a story. It's a long story, and it's a true story of the world. It's a story that begins actually with these words, in the beginning. Now, when, you, when, when you're young kids and your parents teach you, sometimes they'll, they'll tell you a story, and sometimes stories begin with these words, once upon a time, right? Once upon a time. In a sense, that's how the Bible begins, once upon a time. Or in these words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. Boy, you learn that if you grew up in a Christian family. You grew up, you know, since you're really, really small, Right? And your parents start teaching you the Bible, or your teachers in the Christian school teach you the Bible. And they say, God created all things. God created the universe. He created the stars and the planets, and he created this earth. And in the beginning, everything was good. In fact, after God created, he looked at the world and he said, it's good. It's very good. And everything was perfect. Then something happened. There's a little word in the Bible, it's a three-letter word, it's called sin. And sin messes everything up. Sin is basically cosmic rebellion. It's worldwide rebellion. It's a rebellion against God. And what sin does is it, it, it changed everything. And so what sin did, it, 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 it resulted in a curse upon this world. And what it did is, it, what sin does is it separates people from God naturally. A lot of people think, oh, well, I'm not a Christian or I don't go to church and everything will be okay in the end as long as I'm a good person. The Bible says, no, 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 don't, don't believe that. Actually, sin is a very serious thing. What sin does is it affects all of who we are, all of what we do, and it separates us from God. And also what sin does is it creates a curse on this world. So even people who aren't Christians, they look at the world and they say, eh, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Things are broken. Things are cursed. So sin affects us, and sin affects everything in the world around us. 
But the true story of the world tells us that God, although he probably should have, he didn't. He didn't leave the world in its cursed state, but he set out to restore it, to repair it. And he did that by sending his son, Jesus, into the world to, bring, to, to begin the work of restoration. And Jesus came to deal with the power and the guilt and the penalty of sin. And he came in order to deal with the sin problem in our lives so that we might be restored to God. But Jesus also came into this world to deal with the curse upon this physical world in which you're living. And one day, one day when he returns, because he's in heaven now, one day when he returns, all things will be made completely new and sin and the effects of sin will be no more. Hallelujah. That is good news. That's the good news of the Christian faith. It's the gospel. So the gospel is a story that comes in basically four chapters in this story. Creation, the fall into sin, restoration through Jesus, and then finally what we call the consummation, the completion and the perfection of all things in the future. Good news. And this good news is made possible through Jesus the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, guys, look up. This, this book, everything in this book, from the very beginning to the very end, it all is focused, I want you to remember this, it's all focused on Jesus. In fact, you can't understand this book and you can't appreciate this book apart from reading it through the lens of seeing Jesus everywhere in here. It's like, it's like when you ride a bike, okay? Most of you have bikes at home. Next time you ride your bike, I want you to look at the back tire. It's going to be a big round tire, and you're going to find the center of that tire, which is called a what? It's called a hub. And then you have spokes that lead to the hub. The, the, every part of the Bible is like spokes that point to this center. All the spokes find, it, find themselves in that hub at some point, right? Jesus is the hub, and all the, part of the Bible, parts of the Bible point to that hub. Okay, now... Why do you take all the time to explain that? Because we need to understand how we're supposed to read, interpret, and appreciate the Bible. Okay? But also, I took time to say all these things because this is exactly what Jesus teaches us here in Luke chapter 24. And I want to draw your attention to that. All right, so Jesus is not dead. He's very much alive. Jesus, after he died and after he was buried, he rose from the dead It's a central doctrine of the Christian faith. And then after after he rose from the dead, he did two things. He preached about the kingdom of God, and he made post-resurrection appearances. Now, we find just one example of a post-resurrection appearance in our passage. So this is what we got going on. Here's here's a simple story. I know you can understand it. So you have two, two guys, two men, who are walking together, and they're talking. And they were walking from a larger city called Jerusalem, and they were walking to a place called Emmaus. It's a small town about seven miles away. So, I don't know, if you're walking, it it might take you probably an hour and a half, a couple hours, depends how fast you're walking. They're probably not walking real fast. And and, and they're they're just kind of walking like this, and and they're just talking to each other. And and one of the persons in here, his name is Cleopas, Cleopas. And the other one, his name is not mentioned, but, but 
But commentators say that this other guy who's unmentioned is uh, probably Luke himself, okay? Because we find ourselves in the book of Luke. The apostle John, or one of the disciples John, if you ever look at John's gospel, his record of a life in the ministry of Jesus, um, John will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he doesn't refer to his own name. This is probably what's happening here. So let's, let's just say it is. Let's say you have Cleopas and Luke, and they're walking with each other, and they're, they're talking about something really serious. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, and particularly they're talking about how they had heard that Jesus, who many people were, were trying to grasp, who is this man? They sensed that he was somebody significant because of his preaching and miracles. And they had heard that Jesus had died at the hands of chief priests and elders, religious leaders, who had combined with the efforts of the Roman government to put Jesus to death. And they heard that Jesus had died. And then they heard that Jesus was buried. But then they also heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they, had, they also knew that individuals who they knew actually went to the tomb of Jesus, especially women who first came to the tomb, and they looked at the tomb and lo and behold, the tomb was empty. What happened? What happened to the body of Jesus? They were wondering, right? And there was even, they were talking about, about how a vision of angels had revealed to the women that, that the tomb was empty. Now, they were talking to themselves about this, but the interesting thing is at one point, if you remember in this passage, Jesus appears to these men and he starts walking with them. Now, I don't know, how, the Bible doesn't explain how that happened. Maybe, maybe these men were just walking and then Jesus appeared behind them and then started walking beside them, but they didn't recognize Jesus because the passage says that, that their eyes were prevented from understanding and recognizing who Jesus was. So Jesus is walking with them, but they don't know it's Jesus, and they're explaining to Jesus all about this, this person, Jesus, who, who had had suffered and died, crucified, and who died and was buried and, and apparently rose from the dead. But they didn't see it. Other people saw the empty tomb. But, yeah, I mean, what really happened there? Did somebody just get into that tomb and take a body? And so explain this to Jesus. And they were really sad. And they're like, they're saying, we were, we were kind of hoping that, that he was going to redeem, he was going to free the people of Israel because the people of Israel at this time thought, oh, we're under the oppression of the Roman government and they're treating us horribly and we thought that he was going to free us, kind of like maybe what the people of Ukraine are feeling right now with the Russian government and forces upon them. We just want to be free. We want to be free. And the Jewish people want to be free as well. And they thought that Jesus was going to be the answer to this, but they were just kind of skeptical that actually he was even risen. So they didn't understand the gospel, did they? They didn't understand the good news of Jesus. Like a lot of people today, they're skeptical. You know, if, if you look at the world, you see that there's primarily two kinds of skeptics. It's what we call intellectual skeptics, and there are ignorant skeptics. Intellectual skeptics are those who have examined the evidence, let's say, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and read through the scriptures, and looked at the direct evidence and circumstantial evidence, and, and, and they look at it, and they go, eh, I understand it, but I don't believe it. There are people who examine the evidence, but say no, they're skeptical. Ignorant skeptics are not those who are willing to examine the evidence. They just parrot the skepticism or the doubt that they hear around them. The men, Cleopas, and let's say it's Luke, 
were ignorant skeptics. They didn't go to the empty tomb itself. They didn't examine the evidence. All they know is that the tomb was empty, and they're bummed out. They're sad. They're sad. So Jesus is walking. They're telling Jesus all of this. And Jesus, kids, he chides them. That means he, he rebukes them. Why, why don't you believe? Now, I want you to notice his response in particular. Verse 20, 25, and then I'm going to read also verse 26. Okay? And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones. Okay, he's talking to Cleopas and Luke. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now notice, I'm going to read verse 27 as well. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I find this very interesting. Because Jesus is walking with him. He doesn't say, oh, you are so foolish to believe. Hello, look at me. Am I dead? No, I'm very much alive. He doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He points them to this. And he says, this, you need to understand. You should know this. This, this, this points to me. It all points to me. All you have to do is read it and believe it. It was all predicted. But these men, they didn't believe. And... You know, here's the thing, before we get on the case of these two men. All the followers of Jesus initially didn't believe when he rose from the dead. If you yourself this afternoon are somewhat skeptical about this, I suppose you're in good company, because in the beginning, not everybody believed. Everybody was skeptical. Um, we read this, that, that it all seemed to them an idle tale, the disciples of Jesus, and they did not believe them. Now, I, I want to fill that out, uh, A.V., if you can put on uh, Mark 16, beginning at verse 9. Follow with me if you would. Here's the response of the disciples to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when he rose early on the first day, that, that is, when he rose from the dead, he appeared first to women, Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, did they say hallelujah? <laughs> no. No, no, no. They would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Everybody was skeptical in the beginning, not just these two men. Not just these two men. So I want you to notice something. I'm, it, you won't be able to see it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, I want you to notice what Jesus says to his skeptical disciples in verses 44 and 45 of Luke 24. Then he said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. It's like, hello. You can read for yourself in the Old Testament scriptures. It all pointed 
to me. And my disciples, when I was with you, I was very clear. I did not speak in veiled language. I was very clear. I told you I was going to suffer and die and then rise on the third day. You know that I said that. Why are you doubting? Why are you doubting? And it's very interesting here. Jesus, again, draws his disciples to three things. The law of Moses, and when you think of the law, don't reduce it just to the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the first five books known as the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. He said, they all point to me. Made me think of something uh, this past week in regard to this. Kind of brought me back to my seminary days. Kids, I want you to take a look at this. This is a, this is a thick book. And uh, you know what this is? This is a Hebrew Bible. So when you go to seminary, you learn Hebrew and you learn Greek. And... There's, there's some Hebrew here, and there's three Hebrew words. It's Torah. Some of us heard that term before. Torah refers to the law of God. Nabaim, which refers to the prophets. And the Katavim, which is, literally means writings, refers to the poetry of the Bible and some of the wisdom of the Bible. What Jesus refers here is the Psalms. You know what Jesus is really saying? He's saying, my disciples, Cleopas, Luke, all of this. Look how thick this thing is. All of this points to me. It all predicts me. And you can't understand the scriptures apart from looking at them and reading them and appreciating them unless I'm the center of it. Unless I'm the center of it. Um, now, one other thing I want to draw your attention to is the afternoon services are more teaching services. I want to draw your attention now. If you put up the Heidelberg, can you put that up on the screen? Now, it's very interesting that all of what we learned from Luke 24, it's exactly, it's exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism is talking about. So how do we come to know Jesus, his suffering, his death, his resurrection and ascension? How do we understand the good news of Jesus and what he's come to do for us and for the world? Well, what does it say? The Holy Gospel tells me. Kids, the word holy here means it's set apart. That Bible, this Bible is different from every other book in the world because we call it God's Word. Okay? The Gospel means good news. So, the good news of the Bible tells us about Jesus, His person, work, and why we need Him. But how does it tell us? Well, it says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is first of all revealed in paradise. Now, this is sometimes a shock to some people because if they're not very familiar with the Bible, they just think, well, the first time we learn about Jesus is when God sends them to this earth, right? And then Jesus preaches. Mm-mm. First time we read about Jesus is actually in paradise, meaning the Garden of Eden. You know when that happened? Remember after Adam and Eve fell into sin and after the world experienced the curse of sin? God cursed Adam and Eve, and he cursed also the serpent. And when God cursed the serpent, he said this. Listen to this. He said, I'm going to place enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between you and Eve, between your children and her children, and you will bruise his heel, he says to the serpent, and he, which is a veiled reference to Jesus, will crush your head. Technically, that's called the Proto-Evangelium the first declaration of the gospel already in the Garden of Eden. Already in the Garden of Eden, there's good news saying, you know what, things are bad now, things are cursed now, but he's going to come. This one who will be a savior, a rescuer, 
one who will bring victory over evil and over the devil himself. We know that as Jesus, although his name is never mentioned there. But the catechism is right. He's first of all revealed in paradise. Then as time goes on, he's proclaimed, he's spoken of by patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, which makes up the 12 tribes of Israel, and also the prophets. There are many prophets who spoke of the coming of the Messiah in different ways. And he said, he's coming, he's coming. So kids, when you, when you think of the Bible, what you have in the beginning, you have a drumbeat. The drumbeat is soft and it's slow. Already in the Garden of Eden. And then you have the prophets and you have the patriarchs. And then you have, it's foreshadowed in sacrifices and ceremonies. In other words, remember in the Bible you have all these bloody sacrifices. They're pointing to the once and for all sacrifice of the Messiah Jesus to come. What a beautiful day that will be when we don't have to go through all these sacrifices anymore and all the ceremonies of the temple and everything about the temple, the, the, the priesthood and the ministry of the temple and even the furniture of the temple all point to Jesus. And so what we find is we find the drumbeat. As time goes on in the Bible, it goes, it gets louder. And finally, Jesus, at the end of this rapid drumbeat and loud drumbeat comes on the scene and what he does is he fulfills everything that precedes him in the old testament everything that comes before him in this book is fulfilled in jesus and finally comes praise god for that and in his person and his work he deals once and for all with the sin problem and with the curse upon the creation we look forward one day for everything to be made new. You wonder why we call it the gospel. The good news. The good news is who Jesus is, what he's done, what he continues to do, and why we need him, and why the world needs him. As I want to draw to a close, you have to understand that this is everything, when we just say that, that Jesus is at the very center of the Bible and that the gospel finds its meaning and its purpose in Jesus, this is a simple point, but it's a point that many people are either not aware of or they're aware of it, but they don't appreciate it and they're not comforted by it. We live in a world where there are many, and especially younger people. And you ever listen to what, when young people talk, especially those who are in church? You have certain buzzwords from, from young people. There's, there's a search for, and they use words like this, uh, relevancy, authenticity, transparency. You hear oftentimes, we, just, we, want, we want a sense of what is real because we're always being sold lies. We want, we want to discover true spirituality. And they will say this, we don't want the hypocrisy of the common modern church. We want something that's real. We want true spirituality. We want life. We want something real and satisfying and life-giving. Where is that found? You just heard it found in Jesus, who's come to lift the curse from us and restore us to God and give us life not only in this life, but the world to come. And he's come to restore the whole of the creation. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form and through him to reconcile all things, not just us, all things to himself. Man, that, that, that the good news is not, not like this. The good news is this wide, right? So where does that leave us? Hopefully it leaves us 
with one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, who said, Lord, you have the words of life. To whom else should we go? Right? So in the end, may God give us a love for the gospel, knowing that it's the gospel that draws us, the gospel that conquers us in our worst inclinations. It's a gospel that saves us, rescues us, and it's a gospel that transforms us and reshapes us into the kind of people that we need to be, promising one day to reshape the entire creation where in one day when we move on to this different world of new creation, everything will be wonderful indeed, a return to the Garden of Eden, but even better. That's almost too good to be true, but it is true. It is true. We're going to discuss a couple of questions that I'm going to pose to you before we do. Let's, um, let's come to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel It is good news, Lord, for sinners and for a fallen world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for fulfilling the will of our Heavenly Father that you should suffer, you should die, that you should rise also again so that we might know that resurrection and the power of that resurrection for us and for the world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.